January of 2022, so it was just over two years ago, I was out enjoying a fairly decent day in January with some buddies, and we were playing some outdoor basketball. And uh, as we were enjoying basketball, um, I had a collision uh, with a guy, and he basically felt like he was running one direction and just took my left shoulder with him. I can remember in that moment, that is the most painful thing I've ever endured. Now, as a football player, and I've had some pain, but that was like just a, a knife like going through my shoulder. And I remember going home that evening and it hurting so bad. And I, I'm, I'm not a real great patient, so I was kind of already beginning to kind of whimper to my wife, you know, hey, baby, I'm going to need your help tonight. Like this is, you know, I'm going to need you to rub this out. And, and I just remember how painful it was, but I thought to myself, if I just give it a little time, it'll get better. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll give it a week. And a week later, it was still incredibly painful. But it wasn't in every single moment. It was like it just in certain instances. And then I gave it a couple of weeks. And I can remember, though, there would be times at night where just in the middle of the night, I, I would kind of move it a certain direction. And just like this incredible pain would just go shooting through my body. But it was also over time that I realized that my range of motion was lost. Like what I used to could, could do, I can't do anymore. And all of a sudden, my shoulder is just beginning to literally seize up on me. I thought, well, here's the deal. It'll get better with time. And about four weeks after that shoulder surgery, I also noticed something different. At night, not only is my shoulder really painful, but I was beginning to have night sweats. And I'd have night sweats, and then it would kind of go away, and I'd have night sweats again. And, and I started thinking to myself, okay, there might be something wrong with me. Um, and I thought, well, you know what? I'll, I'll just kind of give it a little more time because time well, it's always good. And if I give it a little more time, then it'll just get better. But I had friends in my life who were like, hey, Brandon, like you probably like you'd probably need to go see a doctor. My wife was like, Brandon, you need to go see a doctor. And I'm like, baby, like I'm going to. I'm gonna just give it a little more time. It was 90 days after my initial event that I thought, I'm gonna go see a doctor. And when I did, it was the greatest thing ever. Because it's right on the onset, I thought I may have, you know, shoulder surgery or something like that. He's like, no, you don't need shoulder surgery. You just need a good shot of cortisone. And he said, listen, your, your shoulder is it's locked up. And he said it literally is what's called frozen shoulder. He goes, it wasn't going to get any better. He doesn't require surgery, but it, what it does require is cortisone to, to take away your pain, and then you're going to have to start rehabbing it to get your range of motion back. And he goes, as far as the night sweats, I can't help you. I need you to go to the doctor across the hall. And so I went to another doctor. And really, here's what I realized. In 2022, um, I had been really running at a very fast pace for 11 years of ministry. And in a running at 11 years of counseling appointments, nights gone, lots of teaching, um, oftentimes four or five, sometimes six times a week I was teaching um, in, in my schedule. It's just like my body was throwing up warning signs. You all have a, a dash, you know, and you oftentimes get the warning sign on your dash. I had warning signs um, and my dash was literally going off. And, and the Lord was trying to help me say, slow down. Like, take a break. You need to do something different. 
in the midst of all that, my doctor's like, and by the way, you probably had COVID. That's probably what your night sweats were too. Um, but he goes, we'll never know because you didn't come see the doctor. And here's the point of our message this morning is that a physician can never help anyone who doesn't acknowledge their need for help. Like it's just impossible for a physician to help a patient who thinks that it's all going to get better with time. Anybody ever guilty of that? Most dudes in this room are probably just like me. Like it's just going to get better with time. Well, today we're going to continue our message series on a guy named Matthew. Um, if you have your Bible, don't turn to Matthew, turn to Luke. Um, if you are like, I don't know where Luke is. Um, Luke is, as you start the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those four books together are called the Gospels. They tell about the good news of Jesus. And they also tell about his life and ministry. Today, we're going to be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke, the book of Luke. And we're going to camp there all day today, which is interesting because we're going to talk about the life of Matthew. Now, while you're turning there, I want to welcome those that are joining us on our Edgewood campus. Also want to welcome people who are joining us online across um, the state of Texas, but also across the United States and potentially in Mexico and other countries. Isn't that a cool thing that the people can join us all across the world? Uh, technology is such a useful tool. And I understand there's so many of us in this room who are like, but I hate it. It's such a great thing. The gospel is going forth to every tribe and tongue and nation because of things like technology. And so we're so thankful that you're joining us. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter six. And in Luke chapter six, we're gonna see Jesus call um, some people to follow him, not just from being disciples, but to be called apostles. If you're new with us, over the course of the last about seven weeks, we've been walking through a series called Disciple, in which we take a closer look at Jesus's closest followers. Now, if you've been in church at all during your life, you know that Jesus had followers. We see them called apostles. Oftentimes, we refer to them as disciples. But there were 12 men specifically that followed Jesus closely. Um, and we've heard of guys like Peter and James and John and Andrew. And you see the list of them right here in Luke chapter 6, where it says, beginning in verse 12, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. That's Jesus. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called the disciples. That's a multitude of people. We don't know how many there were, but he chose from that multitude 12, which he named apostles. The apostles were guys who began as followers, as disciples, but then they became preachers. They became um, itinerant ministers. They go out and they tell people the good news about the Messiah. They preached, they did miracles of them their own, and they become Jesus's ambassadors. They literally change the world and turn it upside down is what the book of Acts tells us. And that group of people is Simon, which we know as Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, oftentimes referred to as Nathaniel. And then there's Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, Alphaeus and Simon, who was called the zealot and Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Today, we're going to look at this guy named Matthew. And what's ironic about Matthew is that he does actually write an entire gospel narrative. It's called Matthew. It starts the New Testament. But what's interesting about Matthew and all of his narrative, he only mentions himself by name twice. 
One of the times is the way he's mentioned in most accounts, and that is just a list of disciples. He's in that list over and over and over again. And so you see that in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. You even see it mentioned in Acts. And so he kind of gets his name kind of sprinkled in there, but you don't have much on him other than the fact there's one passage, which we're going to look at in a second, that he writes about himself in Matthew, but Luke also writes about it. And we're going to look at Luke's account since we're already in Luke. But if you want to turn to Luke chapter 5, which is really easy from Luke chapter 6, one page over, uh, potentially, that's what we're going to dive in just a second. But real quickly, let's learn a little bit about Matthew. Here's what we know. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew, because he was a tax collector, was very hated among the Jewish people. He was a Jew, but because he was a Jew that became a tax collector, he actually kind of traded in his Judaism in order to put money in his pockets. And when he decided to take that designation as a tax collector and to put money in his pockets, he basically said, I'm going to abandon my Jewish roots and I'm going to make money and I'm going to, I'm going to care more about possessions than I do people. Anybody ever struggle with that? Well, when he pursues possessions over people, he becomes an outcast. Matter of fact, The Jewish people despised tax collectors so much that they literally removed them from just kind of societal norms. So we know Matthew didn't have many friends, and the friends he did have were going to be people that were just like him. Um, He wasn't, uh, couldn't have been very religious because when he traded in people for possessions, he also traded in his relationship to God. There was no visiting the tabernacles or the synagogues. He he was not going to be able to enjoy a relationship with God because in many ways, he just abandoned everything that the Jewish people believed. Now, when he did that, he also became friends with Rome. Rome was the leading government in that day, and they allowed the Jews to live nearby, but the, the Romans ruled over pretty much everything. The Jews live among the Romans and they despise them already because they have government control. But could you imagine if you had a friend like Matthew, who was a Jew who traded in people for possessions to get to be friends with Rome so he could tax, tax collect his own people on account of the Romans. That's what he's doing. So he's going to his own brothers and sisters and father and mother and friends, and he's tax collecting them on the basis of Rome. But not only does he collect enough taxes for Rome, he also decides to tax tax collect enough for himself. And so he is collecting money for Rome. And what he's doing is he's taking a little bit off the top because he's still got to give an account to Rome for what he's taken, but he's also pocketing his his own pockets uh, and money for himself at the expense of his friends and his own people. As a result, they despise him. They see him as a low-life thug. Not only a low-life thug, but they actually despise tax collectors more than they did the Herodians. The Herodians were Jews that became a political sect under Herod Antipas, and they decided to make Herod great and they rejected everything else to do so. So they were Jews who were traitors for Herodians and became Herodians. And the Herodians were actually a step above the tax collectors. So if you can imagine how hated Matthew was, it sets the context for this man, which is surprising when this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, shows up to 
Matthew's tax collector booth. Look what happens in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. It says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. That's Matthew. And he was at the tax booth. And then he said to him, follow me. Now look at verse 28. It says, and leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. It was an instant decision. I can only imagine that as Jesus comes to the tax collector booth and there's probably multiple people around, he looks at Matthew and says, hey, come and follow me. Matthew probably looks around himself a little bit and is like, Holland, you're talking to me? Like, like you want me to follow you? And the reality was, as Jesus of Nazareth had come to this low-life, despised outcast, Matthew, and he says, hey, come and follow me. And Matthew left everything at once, arose and followed him. So much so that verse 29 tells us that Matthew did something next that was huge. Verse 29 says, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. Well, what happened was, is Levi follows Jesus and says, hey, let's go to my house. Let's visit. Let's talk. And I'm going to throw you a party. Because we know that Matthew knew enough about Jesus to know that he was a rabbi and that he was a leader among the Jews in the sense of his teaching. And so he says, hey, come to my house. I'm going to throw you a party. And what does he do? He gets all of his friends. Now, who were his cronies? Tax collectors. And then it says, and others. Now, when it says others, it was also the low and despised. It was the harlots, the prostitutes, the rejects of society. And so as a result of that, Matthew's friends were all gathered around and Jesus is sitting in the middle of a bunch of sinners. Like that's who Jesus is among. Verse 30, though, shows that there's somebody else that shows up to the party. At least on the outer fringes, they're watching. And it says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So the question was from the Pharisees, which are the religious elite in that day, them and the Sadducees, they have a question about, hey, why are you among these peasants in our society? They just couldn't fathom the fact that a rabbi would sit among a low-class despised people like tax collectors and harlots. And they asked the disciples of Jesus, we know for sure it must have been the 12 and potentially more, hey, why, why are y'all doing this? And which they don't reply, Jesus himself replies. And look what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are, what? Sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Now, what's interesting is, is that this narrative where Jesus says, I've not come for the righteous, but for the sick, is recorded every time that you see Matthew's conversion. So when he says, Matthew, follow me, he goes to Matthew's house, he sits among sinners. The righteous Pharisee was there too, the one who didn't believe he had any sin. And he looks down on all these peasants and he goes, why are you here? And Jesus says, look, I came for the sick, not for the ones who think they're healthy. Does that ring a bell with you? You ever feel like the physician should help you? But the question is, is how does the physician help you if the physician 
is encountering a person who doesn't believe he needs any help. That was my problem a couple years ago. And friends, it's the problem that so many people have today in our society as well. They can't come to Jesus because they don't believe there's anything wrong with them. Or perhaps maybe they've lived among the church and the culture we live in, and they believe actually there is something so wrong with me that I can't come to Jesus because Jesus doesn't deal with people like me. I can remember people early on in the days of Stone Point saying, listen, if I came into that place, like, like the roof was liable to collapse. In essence, they're saying hell will freeze over before I could come into a place like that. But friends, that's a misunderstanding of actually who Jesus is. You don't believe me? There's another account of a tax collector. Let me just show it to you. There's another account of a tax collector and you see it in Luke chapter 19, verses one through 10. Let me show it to you. It says, he entered Jericho. Who was the he? That's Jesus. And Jesus entering into Jericho and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Now, if you grew up in church, you knew Zacchaeus was a wee little man. If you didn't grow up in church, I'll spare you the song. But Zacchaeus, according to verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 2, was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, when you see the word chief tax collector, there's a distinction between him and Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector and Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which means Zacchaeus owned the franchise. He was the mob boss and guys like tax or, or like Matthew made the tax collecting go. So you likely probably never saw Zacchaeus much. He's behind the scenes. And then all these franchises are collecting the debt on Zacchaeus's part. So as a chief tax collector, he has more money because it's all being funneled his way. And guys like Matthew are taking a little bit off the side as well. So as a despised leader of this particular group of people, it's surprising to see what happens next. Verse three says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, that's Zacchaeus, but on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Small in stature means that he was really, really short. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him. He saw who? Zacchaeus. And then when Jesus saw him, he looked up to him and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Look at verse six. This is the response of any sinner when they repent. Verse six. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, look, here's the deal. Zacchaeus ran ahead, climbed a tree so he could see Jesus. When Jesus sees him, he says, hey, that tree you just climbed, come on down because we're going to go to your house today. And he says, let's do it. Let's do it. Zacchaeus is thrilled. And it says this in verse 7, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. Who is that? That's the religious elite. So the religious elite that saw Jesus called the tax collector named Matthew and they grumbled and complained. They see what happens with Zacchaeus and they also grumble and complain. And here's what they say. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
Like it doesn't make sense. Like we are supposed to be devoted to God and we are to be separated from peasants and sinners. Why is this rabbi sitting among all of these nasty, vile people? Why is he calling a guy like Matthew to follow him, a cheater and a traitor? And then not only that, he also goes to Zacchaeus' house. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save, what? The lost, which is the point of the whole narrative. And that is that Jesus came to help the sick. Like, that's why we're here. I'll put it for you up on the screen so you can see it. Like the whole point is that Jesus came to help the sick. Which is crazy because it was lost on the religious elite. It was lost on the Pharisee. It was lost on them so much that they could not understand why Jesus was sitting among them. Now, let me put it in context, okay? The religious elite were very much separated from the culture. They believed that if they had any sin, it was very little. They were so morally righteous and upstanding that anyone else that was clearly misguided separated themselves very easily. It was kind of like us and the people of Walmart. You ever seen those videos? Yeah, so like, and what's crazy is, is that you, you've, you've watched those and you've probably laughed, and you've probably been like, oh, yeah. And, and if you haven't laughed, it's because, well, you're a person that probably is in that video, right? Uh, and that's okay. And as a matter of fact, here's the point. The point is this. Somehow or another, we've actually made it okay in our society to make such distinctions. And Jesus didn't. Jesus actually would have been hanging out with the people of Walmart. And while we sit on our phones and we laugh and we mock and we jeer and we go, how could he be among them? That's where Jesus found himself. Which is quite a contrast from what we've created in our cultures of churches today. Like our churches in some ways encourage people to look like they're all cleaned up. In some ways, we've made it a, a spiritual norm to pretend that you are better than what you actually are. That's become the expectation or culture. Like we go to church to act like we've got it together. But that's actually different than what Jesus said. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. See, Jesus came for the social outcast. Jesus came for the person that doesn't have it together. Uh, there's an old adage back in the day that Jesus is basically saying that he's come to create a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. What does that mean? It means that the church ought to be a place where you're helping the lowly, the despised, the rejected, as opposed to creating a museum, or maybe we could call it a country club, where we all come together, high five one another, only talk to those who look like us and act like us, we pay our dues, and then we talk to one another about how we're going to eventually make a difference. But that's not what Jesus looked like at all. 
which is surprising because while that's very good news, the good news is that no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, there's a God in heaven who loves you and he sent his son Jesus for you. On the backside of that is that you might actually believe that there is a Messiah who did come or will come like the religious elite and miss it altogether. And you might ask the question, why, why did the Pharisees grumble? Why, why do they grumble on the account of Matthew? Why do they grumble on the account of Zacchaeus? The reason they grumbled is because of who Jesus set among. Real quickly, let me make clear to you. They did not disbelieve Jesus on the account of his miracles. They saw the miracles and they could not deny them. So why did they discredit Jesus? Why did they want him killed? Well, the Pharisees wanted him killed for two reasons. One, because his message claimed that he was divine, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one could come to the Father except through him. And the second reason was, is because of who his message went to. It went to the lowly, the despised, the rejected, the outcast, the outlier, which is the point. If Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost, to pursue sinners, Jesus also couldn't help those who refused to acknowledge their sickness. See, a doctor can't help someone if they don't acknowledge their need for help. And that was the problem with the religious elite. They believed that they had it good enough to gather morally that they didn't actually need a genuine Messiah. All they needed was someone to come lead a a military, you know, really gathering of elite people to overthrow their enemy Rome. If they could get that, they believed they had everything else under control. Does that ever sound like us? We just got it under control. Like all I need is Jesus for this or that, but everything else I've got under control. But the problem was that the Pharisees and Sadducees were lost and broken and confused and lonely, and they just couldn't recognize it. Which begs the question, can you determine someone's health merely by appearance? I mean, how many of us have known someone around the age of 40 who looked to have it all together, and one day they're dead? And then you look at some of us other ones and we look at us and you would think, man, we're, we just don't have it together, right? I mean, it's me. Like I'm, I'm growing round and which is fine because it, it helped, you know, rounds is shape too. And that's good. So I'm in shape. Um, and so, but if you look, you're like, oh man, but it's interesting that we look at people's appearance and we determine whether or not they're healthy. But it was interesting, the one who appeared healthy in the Jewish time was actually sick. And the ones who were sick were the ones that could get healthy because they met Jesus. Which just begs the question, one, how are you really doing? Like if I were just to kind of slow it down for a second, how are you really doing? I'm not asking about how you look or how things are going physically. I'm asking like spiritually, how are you doing? Like really? 
Because I think we live in such a day of pretending and acting like we got it all together that we just don't always deal with this question. Yeah, I get it. Everybody else would presume that you're healthy, like you're outgoing, you're vibrant, kind of life of the party, or, or hey, you keep to yourself, you never really tell other people about the things that are going on. But the question is, is how are you doing? And, and see, here's the deal. I want you to realize that when I ask the question, how you're doing, is there's a myriad of responses. There's some of us that there's something in us right now that we go, I'm not doing that well. And then there's others of us who would go, I'm fine. One resembles Matthew and Zacchaeus, and the other one kind of resembles just the religious elite, the Pharisee. Not because you believe that you're morally perfect, but because you're like, I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for 25 years. I'm doing great. Like, me and God are good. Now, how are you really doing? Now, let me show you something. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them into Luke chapter 15. I'm not going to read these narratives, but I want you to see something here. Because Jesus, he often taught in parables. And a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly message. It's an earthly story with a heavenly message. And in this particular context, he is about to share three stories in a row, in which I'm going to just kind of paraphrase for you. But as I paraphrase those for you, I want you to see who Jesus is about to share these stories with. And so I'll put that for you up on the screen, or you can look in Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. It simply says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So they're circling Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. I know that's shocking, right? that the Pharisee grumbled. And they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So we've read three accounts today of the Pharisees being in the presence of Jesus. And every single time they say something similar. <sighs> what is this guy doing with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus just takes the moment to say, well, guys, while I've got you here, let me share three quick stories. And the first story was a story about a hundred sheep. And Jesus says, suppose there's a hundred sheep and one of those sheep goes missing. Hey, would the shepherd not leave the 99 sheep that are found to pursue the one sheep that is lost? And suppose the shepherd finds the sheep was lost. What would the shepherd do? Wouldn't he take that sheep and throw it over his shoulders and take the sheep home? And when he gets home, what do you think the shepherd do, does? He gathers his friends around and he celebrates and they throw a party for the sheep that was lost has now been found. And then suppose there was a woman and she had 10 coins. And in her, her house, she lost one of the 10 coins. Hey, does she not go and light a lamp and then sweep through the house until she finds the coin? And when she finds the one lost coin, what does she do? Does she not call all her friends together? And do they not celebrate that the coin that was lost has now been found? And in both narratives, Jesus said something interesting at the end. He goes, isn't it important to note that when one lost, sheet is, one lost sheep is found, that all of heaven rejoices over one sinner more than they would 99 righteous that don't repent? Or suppose, wouldn't the angels celebrate in heaven when one sinner repents like that of the lost coin? 
Then Jesus goes on. He tells one more story. He goes, now let me tell you a story about a young son. There was a young son who came to his father and he asked for his share of his inheritance. And when his father gave him the inheritance, the young boy went and in reckless living, he squandered everything that his father had given him. In foolish living, we know from the text, and harlots and prostitutes and partying. And it was as he spent all those things, he realized one day as he was living among the pigs that he was hungry. And he had a thought in his mind, my father's servants have it better than I do. Surely if I go home, my father will make me one of his hired hands. And so at once the young man gets up from his reckless living and his time with the pigs and he goes home. And it says in the scripture in Luke chapter 15, that when his father saw him coming a long way off, the father ran to him. He embraced him. He hugged him and he kissed him. And the son started in, father, I know, I know that I have wronged you. I know that I've sinned against you. And I know that I'm not worthy to be called your son, but if you would just make me one of your hired servants, the father had none of it. He says, son, I'm so glad that you're home. And what does the father do when a lost son comes back? He throws a party. So he gathers all of his friends and he says, hey, get him the finest robe, kill the fattened calf for tonight. My son who was dead is now alive. And my son who is lost has been found and we are going to celebrate. And they come around and they begin to celebrate. And as they celebrate, there was one outside who was the older brother who could hear the party inside. And as he came up to the house, he was meted with a servant. And he goes, hey, what's going on? Well, your, your, son, your, your, your father's son, who was lost, has now been found. And they are, they're having a party to celebrate him. The son was indignant. And as he met with the father, he says, Father, what have you done? You, you are throwing a party on the account of your son. He has squandered everything in wild living and, and prostitutes. And you're telling me that you're going to celebrate him? I have been here all these years. I've never asked for an inheritance. I've never done anything. You've not so much as killed a calf for me. And you're doing all of these things for him. And he looks at his oldest son in the eyes and he says, hey, listen, why would we not? Your brother who was dead is now alive. He was lost and he's now been found. And the older brother resembled that of the Pharisee. See, the older brother believed that he was morally righteous and he believed his younger brother to be corrupt. Why are you throwing a party for the corrupt one who squandered everything when you've got a righteous son like here who's done everything you've ever asked of me and you're not throwing a party on my account? See this strange paradox? It's the paradox that we live in. It's what Jesus lived among, a group of people who believed they had it all together and believed that another subset of people didn't, be, didn't deserve not only a relationship with God, yet alone eternal life. And here it was, Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. I've come to pursue the one over the 99. I've come to pursue the one over the, the other nine coins. I've come to pursue the one that was unhealthy over the one who believed they are healthy. And friends, I would just ask you the question, Do you realize that Jesus is pursuing you? And not only that, do you believe that Jesus is pursuing the ones that are not like you? Which I just would ask you the question. What if our church pursued people that weren't like us? 
how many of us would just kind of be uncomfortable with that? I mean, how many of us would honestly get a little bit queasy? Because like, oh, like, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, you know, but the reality is that's who Jesus came for. Jesus came for the sinner. Now there's some of you that you think I'm talking about appearance. And I'm not talking about appearance because Jesus is never concerned about outward appearance. Y'all know that? He only is concerned about the heart. And what I want you to realize is that you might look like you've got it all together, but you know on the inside that you're a sinner and Jesus is pursuing you. The question is, is what's your next step? Like, what do you do? Well, I'll just tell you, the one thing I learned about this narrative was not merely about sinners and tax collectors. What was interesting about what Jesus did when he was pursuing a sinner, it was true in the case of Matthew. It was true in the case of Zacchaeus. It was also true of the case of the young boy. What's the story? He dines at your house and he sets himself up in the living room. He answers your questions and he desires to celebrate with you. See, as I close, I just want to illustrate something with you real quick. There's a lot of us in this room that we've forgotten this. And today I just want to remind you. Jesus desires to set himself up in the home of your heart. He desires to allow you to look into, as the hymn says, his beautiful face. And see, I get it. There's a lot of us in this room that we've been followers of Jesus for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years, 50 years. But this doesn't answer the question of how you're doing and are you meeting with the Savior? Because here's the deal. Is it possible that you could be religious and kind of go through an antidotal religious duty and still not meet with the Savior? Ever do that? But the problem is, is that that's not what's fulfilling. All that is is a person who thinks they're healthy and refuses to see their sickness. But the reality is, is Jesus, he wants to meet with you. Like in case you didn't know this, Jesus loves you. He's created you to be fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows you intimately in ways you don't know yourself. And he just longs to be with you. But the problem is, is that not only do we think we're okay, we live in a culture that encourages us to find ways to dope up with highs and dopamine and so many other things. And some of us find our fulfillment in the Amazon. For some of us, we find it in our kids. For some of us, we find it in our workplace, in our homes, or what we drive, or our status. The reality is, is like Jesus is pursuing you. And so many of us, we, we are missing it. Because we won't acknowledge our pain. We won't like come face to face with him and just say, Lord, I can see all the ways that I've cheated you and I've cheated others. I can see the myriad of lies. I see the pathway of the ways I've pretended. 
Because ultimately, that's what you and I have been taught. Like, hey, just put on a smile and act like you got it all together. How are you doing? I'm fine. No, really, how are you doing? I'm great. It's fine. I'm busy. Isn't that always the response? I mean, I'm busy. I mean, my kids keep me going from, no, how are you doing? I always ask that question as we close. Like, how are you really doing? Here's the deal. You don't have to answer me, though. You all know that, right? But what would it look like as we closed? And even as we went through this next week, if everyone in this room would just commit to say, I'm going to spend some time with Jesus. And I just want you to realize that that looks different for all of us. But what I'm asking is that you and I would stop just glancing at him and gaze upon him. Here's what a glance looks like. A glance means that you do your daily bread Bible study. You do, your, you do your reading plan. And for some of us, that's three verses, and some of us, it's three chapters. But the reality is, is you can read all you want and still miss time with Jesus. I'm just asking, like, will you sit with him? Will you build in a little extra time to just say, Lord, I just want to be with you? And I get it. You're like, I can't. Like, there's no time. Like, I mean, you don't, you, have you been to my home? Like, I mean, I got kids running crazy. I don't even have energy for this. For some of you, you're grandmas and you got kids. And you're like, I don't, like, I, I can't even wash my hair. You want me to spend time with Jesus? Yes. Because we need that. And here's the news to you. He wants to spend time with you regardless of what you've done, of where you've been, of what's been done to you. He's crazy about you. He wants a relationship with you. And I pray that you'll let him in to the home of your heart so that he can dwell with you. For some of you in this room, it may be the very first time that you've ever heard that like God loves me and he can save a sinner. Like, Brandon, you know all I've done? No, I know all I've done and I know God's grace met me there. And I know that if he can meet me there, he can meet you there. And that's what's called salvation. Salvation is simply a term called lostness being brought to light. You were dead, now you're alive. And all it is is just saying, Lord, will you forgive me of sin? Will you come into my life and will you make me new? Will you help me to follow you? For some of you, that's today. For many of us, it's not that. For many of us, it's, Lord, would you return to me the joy of your salvation? Would you help me? Because I've been going through the motions. Everybody thinks I'm okay, but I'm not okay. And I just need you, Lord, to help me because I'm in pain and I'm hurting and I'm a sinner and I don't have it all together. And everybody else thinks I have it all together. And I'm supposed to have it all together because everybody else is depending on me to have it all together. But I don't. May the Lord meet you there. And may he set you on fire for his glory. But may you start there humbly of just saying, Lord, I need you. Don't go through the motions. Why? Because there's a God who already knows what you need and he's simply waiting for you to acknowledge it. Quit acting like you don't need a physician and come to the great physician. By the way, you may wonder, well, why did we read all that through Luke? Well, one, it makes it easy. We don't have to turn everywhere. But do y'all know that Luke was a physician? 
And if Luke was a physician and he knew how to help people, he put very plainly for us and who the great physician is and how we can receive the help of Jesus himself. He's one conversation away and he wants to set himself up in the throne of your heart. That means that something else may have to go in order for him to meet you there. But I pray that he'll give you the grace and the courage to meet with him. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you came for sinners. Lord, we thank you for the story of Matthew. And while we don't have a whole lot to read about him, what we do know is that he was despised, rejected. His only friends were people like him. And yet it was his house that you went to. And right there in his house, you set up a place to meet with him. And while there were people on the fringes saying things and judging him and making snide comments and rude remarks, it didn't, it didn't change the focus of your son, Jesus, who came to seek and to save that which is lost. Lord, I thank you that his pursuit was resolute, that he set his eyes upon Jerusalem, that he went to Calvary's cross. He paid a debt that we could never repay. He spread his arms wide for those sinners such of us that regardless of where we've been, we could come to you. And we thank you that his life was spent pursuing sinners so that in that moment where he shed his blood, that his very life was poured out and given for those who would believe in you. And I pray that we would recognize your free gift and we would turn to you. I pray that in this moment that sinners would repent and they would find themselves in good company with other sinners who have known you and want to know you more. For the person in this room who's known you for a long time, but they've slidden, I pray that you would uphold them with your righteous right hand. For the person who thinks they've got it all together and somehow you managed to bring them here today, I pray that you would meet them right there at the door of their heart. I pray that you knock so loudly that they, they can do nothing other than open and receive the invitation to meet with you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that's in spite of who we really are. Thank you for this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to meet with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.